Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 317. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 317 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy Award-winning mixer, engineer, and producer Ryan Gilligan. Ryan got his start at Quad Studios in New York, where he started as an intern, then assistant, before taking on a year-long engineering gig for Busta Rhymes. Following that, he returned to Quad and began a mentorship with Michael Brower that would last for seven years and take him from Quad Studios to Electric Lady. He got to work alongside artists such as Coldplay, John Mayer, Kanye West, Shakira, Grizzly Bear, and many others. Eventually, he moved to Los Angeles to work with producer John Hill on music for Adele, Gwen Stefani, Florence and the Machine, and many others. He ended up staying in Los Angeles and continues to work there to this day freelancing. Ryan Gilligan, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about a potentially sleep-inducing topic that I promise I will be to the point with and try not to put you to sleep. Banking. That's right. Let's cut to it. Everything I tell you is going to be based on my experience as a U.S. citizen. Obviously, your banking laws and banking particulars are going to be different from country to country. Let's start with this. If you are doing an audio business, you should make sure that you have your business banking separate from your personal banking. That doesn't necessarily mean different banks. You could do that, but it means separate accounts. Each account, a personal versus a business, helps you categorize properly. So at the end of the year, when you're tabulating all of your expenses, finding out how much income did you bring in, what did you spend, where did you spend it, it's much easier if you have that consolidated into a business account. Now you could do that obviously with a business credit card, etc. That's up to you. But when it comes to banking, make sure that you have business separate from personal. That's the first thing. The second thing, you got your brick and mortar banks and you got your online banks. Yes, your brick and mortar banks have an online presence. I'm aware of that. However, your online only banks do not have the expenses that your brick and mortar banks have. As a result, they can offer you a different set of offerings for an account. Such as what, you may ask? Well, most brick and mortar banks have a minimum balance requirement. Most brick and mortar banks have monthly service fees. Most brick and mortar banks have fees for non-sufficient funds. Most brick and mortar banks charge for checks. Online only banks typically have no minimum deposit or balance. They have no monthly service fees. Uh, They have no ATM fees. They have no fees for non-sufficient funds and they offer free checkbooks. Those are great things. In addition to that, online banks may offer you an interest rate more competitive than the brick and mortar banks. So what I look for in an online bank is all of that that I just mentioned, plus unlimited transactions uh, and the ability, this is really key for me, to pay vendors and bills by ACH wire or check. ACH, simply put, is a way to pay people straight to their bank without the use of a wire or a check or cash or some other method. It's just kind of a, you know, bank to bank transfer. And that's really important for me. So, you know, I pay Anne-Marie to edit the show and I pay her monthly. And so I just go to my bank and I have a tab set up to where I can just pay her, goes straight to her bank, takes a couple days, there's no fees. We could skip all the middle players like Venmo and PayPal and just go bank to bank. That's really, really important for me. You can make transfers to your other accounts with these online banks. 
really simply. Uh, your deposits, this is very important, your deposits are FDIC insured at least up to $250,000. Now, what is FDIC? That was invented in, uh, I think, 1933 because of bank failures of the past and people losing their money your money is insured up to a certain amount, $250,000, I think, per account, per person. So if you've got a ton of money and you know you don't wanna have all that sitting in one bank account because only $250,000 are insured, I don't have that problem. And in addition to all of that, the user interfaces for these online banks, that is where they put a lot of their focus in addition to these features. They make it easy for you to do your business, to look up your accounts, to pay people, to receive payments, to uh, have tie-ins with things like QuickBooks. They're really great at that. And I can tell you from experience that brick and mortar banks I've used are horrible at that and they charge you all all kinds of fees and oh you want to add that feature well that's going to cost this and you're going to have to jump through a whole set of hoops to get that to work that's been my experience that's why i'm kind of advocating here for doing an online bank system at least for your business banking if you want to do it for your personal banking too that's great all that said here are the things that you give up in that online banking thing you give up the ability to walk into your local bank hand them some cash and say put that into my account I love that I can call them, go down there, I can solve problems. That's a real bonus. Now, you have to ask yourself, how many real problems do you encounter with your banking on a daily basis or on a yearly basis? And how often do you deposit cash? Is Are those things important enough to pay a monthly fee, limited serviceability, et cetera, et cetera? Explaining all of this, I will say I still have a local bank uh, unique to California that I use for cashing checks for my kids for, you know, like birthdays and Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. Also, I have a business account there. Now, that's a leftover account that I started some time ago and growing frustrated with their online presence and how they dealt with things and all the fees involved. That's what got me on the online banking. So this is not some big push to get you to online banking, but it is something to get you to consider doing that if you're frustrated like I was with how your brick and mortar bank works. And most importantly, the, the thing I told you at the beginning is make sure that you have your account separate so it's easier to track. And I don't care if you're a sole proprietor or an S corporation or an LLC, whatever you are as a business entity, make sure that you keep your business separate from your personal. Now, I'm gonna include some links for NerdWallet and Bankrate and maybe some other things for you to check out so you can do a comparison of banks because I'm not gonna endorse or recommend one bank to you. I think that's something that you need to figure out on your own. So that's it, banking. Hope that didn't bore you to death, but uh, I think it's important. And in the new year, if you haven't got your money together or your accounts together, you're consolidating, whatever you're doing, this is a great consideration for you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Ryan Gilligan here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You come to us courtesy of our mutual friend, Daniel Holter. Great to have you here. I'm going to start by uh, just getting into life in the beginning. I know that you started life at Quad Studios in New York, and we'll get to that, but I want to talk about what preceded that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in North Jersey, a town called Roxbury. It's about 45 minutes out of New York, east of New York. Were you in band programs growing up in school? Yeah, big time. I played the trumpet since fifth grade. Yeah, I was in band all throughout school, through high school, jazz band, marching band, concert band. Yeah, all of it. Any brothers or sisters? I have two younger brothers. They are both NASA employees. I'm the the odd duck. I'm the music guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always a plan B, right? Exactly. Just go to space. Get an internship at NASA. Well, why not? At what point in your life did audio become something that you were aware of, something you wanted to do, something that was of importance? I think that started when I was in high school, just like playing in bands, having friends in bands. And I always found myself somehow being the guy who would run the mini disc player or the cassette recorder, whatever we were working with, just to record little demos and and things. I just found it really fun to kind of handle that technical side of it. When you graduated from high school, did you go to college? 
I did. Yeah, I went to Duquesne in Pittsburgh. Actually, I went to Penn State first for a year. I was an architecture major and missed being around music and transferred from Penn State to Duquesne for my sophomore year. Yeah, Duquesne, I did music tech. So it was the only trumpet playing music tech major. Everyone else was on guitar. <laughs> How did you like the program there? Did you feel that it got you a start in understanding the mechanics of recording and the workflow? Yeah, it did. It was cool. There were some things that were very specific to the way that they, they taught the curriculum. There wasn't a lot of Pro Tools, even though that was standard even then. But in terms of the workflow, different types of mics, recording formats and things like that, yeah, it was a good start. Yeah, they used Samplitude was like the main DAW that everyone <laughs> was learning on there. Not many people use Samplitude. So you eventually graduated or did or did you not? I did, yeah. I graduated in three years and I was playing trumpet throughout that. That's what I had to audition to get in. So I was playing in jazz and the wind ensemble there on trumpet and then also doing all the recording stuff and recording in every moment of free time I had with people outside of class. And eventually you would go to New York, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And you started as an intern at Quad Studios there. What led you to New York? What led you to go to Quad? I grew up always wanting to live in New York. I mean, it was very close to where I grew up. So that was just kind of always the plan to move to New York. And Quad was just the one place that accepted my resume and decided to hire me. I interviewed at a few other studios. I think Avatar, the Magic Shop, Sony was still there at that time. Yeah, got into Quad. They, they wanted to hire me. And tell me about that intern process, how they treated you. What did you learn? Were there any standout moments? And did you have any mentors there in that time of interning? Yeah, the work process there was pretty freeform. There was at least a dozen other interns. And like you start out doing the standard things, you're going on runs, cleaning the rooms, cleaning the bathrooms, just trying to show that you're responsible, reliable kind of person. And pretty much you had to get to know the older staff there. So I became friends with like a few of the assistant engineers and house engineers at Quad. And eventually if they liked you, they'd invite you to sit in on a session, you'd second assist on a session. So there'd be the engineer, assistant engineer, and a second assistant. And basically just a fly on the wall trying to absorb as much as you can and not get in the way. So a lot of a lot of the other interns that I started with dropped like flies the first couple of months I was there because they were too chatty in the rooms or just not showing up to work, just like really dumb kind of things. In terms of a mentor, I, this guy LB, he goes by LB9000, shout out to LB, Robert Dorsey. He's done a lot of work with The Roots, Rock Nation, a lot of guys he works at, or I think he has a room at MBK Studios in New York now. But he, he took me under his wing pretty early on and took me around to different sessions around the city in addition to having me on a quad as well. I'm curious about, you know, the folks that dropped off. I'm curious about the discussions that took place between the interns. Did anybody ever say to the folks that were dropping off, hey man, you got to keep your mouth shut if you're going to stick around here? I mean, I'm sure those conversations took place. I wasn't really trying to get into anybody else's business. I was just kind of just like very focused on what I was doing and how I was being perceived. That said, Quad was definitely a party studio. I think it still is, but especially at that time. So a lot of the sessions and just hours people were hanging out there was just like people were drinking and smoking and just kind of treating it as like a very casual kind of vibe and not a work atmosphere. So I tried to 
play both sides of that and just be cool, like hanging out, but also recognize that I'm trying to stay focused on career and moving up quickly so I can start working on sessions. Now you're living in New York, you're interning. I assume the internship is not a paid one. So how are you surviving? Well, I interned for, I guess, seven or eight months before I started getting paid. So those, the beginning, I was still living in New Jersey at the time, and I was working at the Apple store in my hometown and taking the train in to Penn Station to intern. Yeah, I was going just full on seven days a week. If I wasn't at the Apple store, I was at the studio. A lot of the sessions at the studio, if I get asked to second assist, which was also unpaid, they did a lot of late night rap and hip hop sessions there. So I would be at the Apple store until like 4 or 5 p.m., take the two hour train ride into the city, work overnight till 7, 8, 9 in the morning, take the train back and work the day shift at the Apple store again. That was kind of like a very regular occurrence. So just grinding pretty hard. Not a lot of sleep in that time period. No, not a lot of sleep. And actually it triggered like a thyroid condition. My metabolism just went into overdrive and had a whole a whole thing there. Oh man. Yeah, I lost like 40 pounds in a month wow. before I realized like something's weird and I was all jittery and it was just like the lack of sleep and just stress, I think, to send my thyroid crazy and yeah, I had to get like radiation treatment and stuff. That's insane. To kill my thyroid. <laughs> was that was that primarily due to lack of sleep or was that poor nutrition or was it just like a combination of a, of a series of things? I think it was probably a combination of all of that. Mm. Bad nutrition. Yeah. Lack of sleep. Not enough rest. I was really burning the candle at both ends. Most of the time, the only sleep I was getting was during the train ride because I was the last stop in both directions. Mm -hmm. So I could just pass out until the train stopped and then wake up and, and hop off. Wow. Well, you certainly learned what not to do in that position. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of balance for me then. You moved up to the assistant position and obviously with that comes some money. Did you stay at the Apple store or did you continue to do both gigs? I tried to do both as long as I could until I was getting called for enough sessions that it made sense to quit at Apple. Yeah, I mean, the, the pay even assisting was not great. I think it was like eight or nine dollars an hour, something like that. So it was, a, it was a little while before I was getting enough work there to feel comfortable to quit. And at some point in your bio, you talk about taking a year-long engineering gig for Busta Rhymes. Can you set that up for me and tell me how that came into happening? Yeah. So a friend of mine from Quad, Randy Johnson, I met him at Quad. He had been there for a while and he was working with Busta and Busta always had two engineers with him. The other guy that Randy was with got fired and Randy suggested to Busta that he hire me to take his place. So I got a text from Randy at one point like, hey, Busta's going to call you. Are you ready to come to LA? And I was already semi-jaded at this point. I was like, okay, I'll believe it when I get the call, you know. The next day, I get a call from Busta Rhymes, answer the phone. It's an unknown number. He's on the other end of the line. He's like, yo, Ryan, this Busta, yo, you ready to come to LA? I'll put you on a flight. In that deep voice. In in the Busta voice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was kind of surreal in that moment. But yeah, I said, I'm ready to go. And he connected me to his travel agent, person and they booked me on a flight actually later that evening same day i had to call out of a session i was supposed to assist at quad <laughs> sorry gotta go to la for busta yeah i didn't want to i didn't want to miss out on the opportunity it was there it was probably some unimportant session i don't remember what it was that i called out of but they understood there was a lot of quad alums that 
worked with Busta. It was kind of just this chain of quad people who would keep passing along the gig. It's like mm. the next guy. So that was your first time to the West Coast? It was, yeah. You land, what happens? I land, there was a car waiting for me at the airport. So jumped in the car, they drove me straight to the record plant and jumped in on the session right there as soon as I got off the plane. And what was that feeling like? I mean, fresh off the plane, jumping right into a session, new environment, were you spinning a little bit? No, it was cool. I mean, everyone was good. Randy was there, so I knew him. He introduced me to everybody. Busta was cool, super nice. Yeah, the session went well. I guess the only thing is I started to hit serious jet lag at like one or two in the morning, LA time after the flight. So I was pretty killed by the end of that session, but but it went well. I was, I was really focused on just trying to like do a good job, make good first impression with everybody. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Now, I assume that after the whole thyroid incident, you were kind of keeping an eye on on how things were going with sleep and nutrition at this point, right? I probably should have been, but I was still focused on doing whatever I needed to do to get the next gig or do a good job, be available. Yeah. And so this lasted a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From that point, it was about a year. We were traveling around the country on the tour bus. He wasn't playing a lot of gigs. It was more like driving from city to city to work with different producers. Yeah. We'd be like in LA, drive all the way to Miami, be in Miami for like a week, drive back to LA, to New York, Miami, Atlanta, LA. We were just kind of bouncing back and forth between all those places. Was it a proper tour bus? Yeah. Big, big red tour bus flip mode, blasted alongside of it. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. It's a big bus. We had a PlayStation in the back. So bunk beds, the whole thing. What were the takeaways from working with Busta? What did you learn out of that experience? Skills-wise, I got super good at recording vocals and punching in and out on the fly. If you've ever heard Busta Rhymes, you know he's super fast. 
So he'd be going like, and you get to punch like two words in and out, and it's got to be just totally seamless. He works really quickly. So just being able to record vocals and like stay completely in the zone with them, get into their head and kind of anticipate what they're going to want to fix before they do. So you're already ready. Listening for how it's coming out, how their performance is, and also paying attention to the lyrics, which was something that it took me a while to learn is they'll say, oh, I want to get the word. Chevrolet, whatever, whatever the word is, just knowing like, okay, where was that in the last 30 seconds that we recorded? So really quickly get that. And then also just, I guess, file management was super important. He was getting tons of emails every day with different beats from different artists and producers sending him stuff and just trying to keep a handle on where all that stuff was so I could quickly pull up anything that he was asking for. Were there any moments where you kind of were losing track of stuff or where you got yelled at or where there was tense moments because nobody bats a thousand. So, (laughs) Yeah, there was definitely some times where it took a while to find stuff. We rolled around with, I think it was actually a duffel bag filled with lacy hard drives. (laughs) And some of them were dating back 10 or 15 years before I had even started working with him. And they're all labeled very poorly and you don't know what's on any of them. There's no information of any of it. It usually happened when we were like on the tour bus somewhere out in the Midwest and he wants to hear a beat that somebody sent him and he would just kind of beatbox it. You know, it goes like this. I think I got it like two years ago. It's from so-and-so person, I think. And you're kind of going off nothing. And for him, he just wants to hear what he's looking for in that moment as quickly as possible. And there's definitely times it took a few hours to find something, just digging around on drives based on like how he beatboxed it and who he remembered it being sent to him from. Yeah, there was definitely, definitely some challenging times with that. Did you have a setup, a Pro Tools rig on the bus? Yeah, an M-Box, a U87, and a MacBook Pro. That was the whole whole rig. Well, so after a year, what was the cause of your departure, if I may ask? I felt like I wanted to get back to New York and get back into a studio again. I felt like I wasn't learning enough because most of the time when we were working with him, we were recording in hotel rooms or on the tour bus or posted up in spare rooms at the studios. He'd jump in on a lot of other people's sessions and they would have their own engineers already. So I just felt like I wanted to learn more because I felt like I'd reached a point just tracking vocals primarily that I wanted to record bands, learn about mixing, just kind of expand expand the repertoire a little bit. So you returned to New York to Quad? Yeah, that was home base for me. I still had a lot of friends there. So yeah, that was where I went back to. And you began a mentorship with Michael Brower. Can you tell me how that came to pass? Yeah, so Brower was in Studio B at Quad. He'd been there for a number of years and his assistant, Will Hensley, was working for him. He was just a good friend of mine, Will, and he had been training somebody else actually to take over for him. And eventually it didn't work out with him. So they had to let him go. So there was an opening and Will let me know. He said, would you be interested in doing this? I said, absolutely. I just started second assisting under Will with those guys. In your bio, you say that's a mentorship, but was that a paid position? Was Were you working directly for Michael or were you still working for Quad? I was paid by Quad, but I was only working with Michael. Hmm. And it was pretty low pay. It was like $8 an hour, something. Less than I was making with Busta, for sure. Less than I was making assisting sessions before at Quad. Hmm. It felt like 
taking one step backwards to go two steps forward at the time. That's how I kind of rationalized it. I was like, this is a huge opportunity. I'm going to learn more than I could anywhere else. This is the best thing. So it's worth hustling more, taking the pay cut and just putting in the hours and learning. What about that process? What did you learn from Michael? Everything, man. It was, (laughs) um, yeah, how to mix, how to handle super high-end clients, navigate the politics of that stuff, dealing with the artist, the producer, A&R, all the different egos and personalities involved in the process. Was that learning by just watching or did he ever sit you down and go, look, when you're doing this, here's how this has to work? Both. Yeah. There was a lot of being a fly on the wall, especially when I was first starting out, observing everything, paying attention, trying to figure out what's going on and anticipating what's going to happen. And then definitely there were occasions where something would happen and it would be a learning moment, I guess. And he would sit me and Will down and be like, look, you saw what happened here. This is why this happened. This is why I did this. You need to understand this kind of thing. What was a key thing that you remember from when it comes to mixing? If I could get you to name like, you know, one or two things, what sticks out in your mind about mixing that he taught you? I guess the first one is that it's about the emotion in the music and trying to bring that out however possible. He would start a mix and if he didn't have something that felt emotionally impactful within 10 or 15 minutes, throw all the faders down and start over. He was just looking for like whatever the the thing was that was really going to draw someone in, whether it was just a guitar line or the vocal or really hard hitting drums or something, and then basing the mix around whatever that really emotional draw is. Hmm. That's a, a great overarching theme. I love that. Well, so how long did that last? How long did you work with Michael? I worked with Michael for a little over seven years. Wow. Yeah, we were at Quad for a year or two and then relocated to Electric Lady. And then we were at Electric Lady for, I don't know, five years, six years. He was there for even longer after I left. But yeah, it was a long it was a long time. And obviously, when you guys went to Electric Lady, you weren't being paid by Quad anymore. No, I was paid by Electric Lady at that point. Oh. Yeah, he, he managed to never have to pay his own assistant somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the deal. Well, you know, I mean, in one way... That benefits Electric Lady because they get Michael to come in and stay there for a long period of time, and then they get somebody who knows how Michael works. So yeah, I mean, it was it was fine. I got a little bit of a pay bump at Electric Lady, which was nice. Still, I think it was like eleven dollars an hour, twelve dollars an hour, <laughs> something like that. But you get to work with some pretty cool people while working with Michael. There, Coldplay, John Mayer, Kanye West, Shakira, Grizzly Bear. Yeah, we were working with a ton of cool people. It wasn't really about the money. I was working enough hours that it was fine. We were pulling 14-hour days, or I was pulling 14-hour days, five or six days a week for pretty much the entire time I was working with him. So I was surviving financially and getting to be around and work alongside all these cool artists and producers and, and learning from Michael and just absorbing all of it. After that period of time, with Michael and shaping your own career moving forward, is there an overarching thought process that that you still carry with you that Michael imparted on you? I guess, I mean, technically the, the same thing about mixing that still pervades my thought process is trying to draw out the emotion, treating mixing as very much like its own performance and creative impact on the music. It's not just like a technical balance thing. And I guess another thing is like kind of careers tend to go in There's high points and low points. You get busy, maybe you're less busy, and then you get busy again. And trying to set yourself up to like 
always be looking for the next gig, the next producer you want to work with and setting yourself up so that you always have something coming up down the line. Is there anything business-wise dealing with clients or managing your career that Michael ever told you to think about and that you took seriously? One, take the business side of it seriously. Be very clear up front with whatever your deal is, whatever you're going to get paid, whatever services you're providing. Have that be very clear and upfront so that you can forget about it and then just focus on the music. Because hmm. when people are unclear about things business-wise, it can really infect the creative process yeah. like down the line. You eventually moved to LA to work with producer John Hill. You worked on music by Gwen Stefani, Adele, Florence and the Machine, and, and quite a few others. It seems like you're kind of shifting back and forth between New York and LA over the course of your career. Actually, you're living in LA now, even though as we're talking, you're on the East Coast. You stayed there in LA for the long term. I did, yeah. I moved out there for that gig and I ended up staying. It's just nicer out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Much better weather. <laughs> You know. You already know. I know. <laughs> Although as I'm talking to you right now, the rain is coming down here in Northern California. So, mm. But yeah, overall, Southern California, great weather. I enjoy it quite a bit, I have to say. Mm -hmm. How did you find eking out a living there, surviving, continuing your, your career? It felt like a good move. When I took that gig, I had moved on from Brower and I was freelancing around New York. I was working a lot at Jungle City and Quad and Electric Lady. But there wasn't that much going on so that when I got the call to go to L.A., it was like a no-brainer for me. I guess I'm, I'm kind of impulsive with that, I guess, spontaneous. So I was like, yeah, I'll move to L.A. for a year at least, see what happens. But I found most of my friends that I made quickly were friends of friends or ex-New Yorkers. I had already knew like a lot of people who had moved out there from New York. So I felt like I had somewhat of a community out there to establish some roots on the West Coast. And how did you find getting gigs? You were freelancing, but were you trying to work at various studios as well? Not really. I started a project, it was like the week or two before I went to LA for this guy, Kevin Garrett. And that turned into a really big project for me. It gave me some momentum. I mixed the first song in New York and then in LA during the time I was working with John, we did an EP and then another EP together mixing for, for Kevin. It kind of blew up a little bit and I just started getting calls based on that mixing wise. Even still today, I get emails saying, yeah, yeah, I heard this Kevin Garrett track that you mixed. Like, I love the vibe. I'd love for you to work on my stuff. So it kind of happened, I guess, based off of that. And like the reputation and the credential of working with Brower for so long kind of gave me some credibility. Were you keeping that in mind when you were working with Brower that long-term, this is going to be a good thing for me? Oh, yeah, from the very beginning. I knew who he was and I knew the people he was working with. So yeah, it was it was very much like this is a good career move to be associated with him and just by name and then also to actually learn how to do what he was doing. It's interesting I'm comparing your experience to former WCA guest Kevin Churko. Kevin worked for a long time for Mutt Lang in Switzerland and then he mm -hmm. came to LA and he had hey, I've worked with Mutt Lang, that's on my resume. And here you are, I worked with Brower, that's on my resume. Yeah, it's definitely a good pedigree, I guess. Tell me about moving forward and where are you at today? What's the assessment of how it's been in LA up to this point? It's going pretty well. I, I've been busy since I left New York consistently, paying the bills, mixing. I've done some production 
and some engineering recording sessions and stuff. It's it's tough. It's like a constant grind, but it's cool. One challenge I have is being set up the right way. I'm always switching between having a home studio or wanting a separate space. For me, it's hard to justify the overhead of having a separate space. Rent in LA is super expensive. So I've always kind of had like a home studio and trying to deal with the acoustics of that is a little tricky. Whenever I think, um, maybe I should get a space outside of the house. And then I just, I come to my senses and go, why would I do that? Why would I spend that money per month? So I'm, I'm with you. I really enjoy having a home space that's dedicated. And even honestly, even with the acoustics as they are in this room, which actually are quite good. I've been kind of training myself to mix on headphones, kind of thinking long-term of travel. Yeah, that's tough. I'm trying to do the same thing, especially right now with COVID. Yeah, because when things started to get locked down in LA, my girlfriend and I skipped town up to uh, Tahoe where her family has a cabin, beautiful up there. She has a little wooden cabin from the 30s right by the lake. It's been Mm. in their family forever. And I left my big speakers at home, Went up there with just headphones and a pair of Aventones and trying to do the, the headphone mixing. It's challenging. I'm still learning. As far as making a living, have you have you been able to carve it out with just mixing or audio work, I should say, or have you diversified at all? I've been able to make it with just mixing for the most part, especially since I've been out in LA. Yeah, occasionally there's like a production producing something or tracking, but yeah, 99% of the time it's just mixing. I'm lucky that I've been able to stay busy, I think, for for so long. How do you price your mixing as far as do you do it by the mix? Yeah, flat rate very much depends on who the client is. Labels have bigger budgets than indie artists. So I kind of work with with people's budgets and open to negotiating, especially if I think the project is really cool or I really want to work with that artist. I'll be open to taking less money for the mix up front. Yeah, flat rate. Do you ever try to ask for points on a mix or do you just keep it to straight money? Occasionally, if I think it's it's worthwhile to negotiate or if the budget is super low up front, I'll ask for ask for a point or two. In the past I've been against that because I don't have a manager or anyone to really like follow up on that stuff. Yeah. And that's a whole a whole job in itself. And when you're working with indie artists, you're kind of just relying on them to keep their business straight. But now there's this thing called Vidia which a client of mine uses to handle royalties and it works really well. It just, hmm. they put in all the splits in there and then it pays me every quarter automatically. Vidia, how are you spelling that? V-Y-D-I-A. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Is that something that the listeners can go check out on their own? For sure. Yeah, it's been it's been good from my end so far. What is your financial advice to those listening, whether they're pros or beginners, about how to survive in this business? I'm very strict with budgeting. I know it sounds very boring mm-hmm. and lame, but I budget for things. I don't keep any kind of credit card balances. I save money until I can afford to buy something in cash and then I buy it if I need gear or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's really it. Just keeping track of expenses and how much I can I can spend on stuff. So you have a little buffer month to month. So if there's like a slow period, you have savings to cushion that until you get busy again. And then you kind of just work it, ride it like a wave a little bit. Excellent. Great advice. Well, and I assume as far as people finding out more about you, they can head over to ryangilligan.com, which we'll include in the show notes. Any other places that people can check you out at? 
Yeah, the website's good. I'm also on Instagram. It's at Gilligong, G-I-L-L-Y-G-O-N-G. We'll include that. Well, Ryan, great to meet you. Great to chat with you and find out about your journey. And I thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, thanks, man. Really good to meet you, too. Thanks okay. for having me. Well, you take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Ryan Gilligan here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank, of course, my whole crew, including Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the mystical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Stop on by workingclassaudio.com, leave a review on iTunes, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.